Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. Um, it's a little bit different uh, today from our last few weeks. Absolutely. We enjoyed having Ryan on, but uh, time for us to, to chat about uh, our own views now. Yep. Uh, so coming back, I, I was actually inspired this week when I saw something on Hacker News uh, with a, a title uh, for a blog post called, uh, What Do Executives Do Anyway? And uh, as a longtime executive, I thought, oh, that's a good question. What, <laughs> what is it that I do? And as a coach of executives, I was interested in the answer too. That's right. And so we went ahead and um, looked at and read this blog post from Avery uh, Panarun. I'm probably mispronouncing that, um, with the handle Appenoir. And uh, he had uh, written this after reading the book um, by Andy Grove of Intel, uh, High Output Management, so one of the classics. And he had said, uh, basically paraphrased the book, that the job of an executive is to define and enforce the culture and values for their whole organization and to ratify good decisions. And that pretty much that was it. That was the that was the message of the book. So since I haven't read it, and I know you have, Squirrel, what do you think? Is that a good paraphrase? Um, well, the first thing is that I'm utterly shocked that you haven't read it. Okay. So uh, I think you should go forth and, and read it right away. I, I hear you have it in your library. So it, It's sitting uh, on top of my desk right now, top good. of the list. So read it today uh, because the book is excellent. Um, you could almost call it Management for Dummies. Uh, it's written in a very accessible style. It's very simple. It tells you very nice uh, analogies and rules to follow. It's uh, step by step. Uh, so, uh, if, if literally, I think if he'd written it today, it would be uh, laid out very differently and have a yellow cover. So, uh, <laughs> highly recommend the book. And uh, sounds like Avery read a different one than me because oh. <laughs> I, I def definitely uh, did not pick up this paraphrase. Certainly, that's a lot of what Grove talks about. But he also talks about things that we've. Uh, discussed before and, and probably will again, that, that amount to the, the briefing and back briefing technique of the art of action. We've talked about that multiple times before, where instead of just meeting with your people and listening to them make a decision and blessing it, which is more or less what uh, Avery says the, the algorithm is for being a good executive, Grove takes more action. So it, there's a point in the book that I really like where you, you get to follow him around in a typical day. And some of it is exactly that. Some of it is he's listening to somebody says, yep, good job. Keep doing that or tweak this slightly or something like that, which does match uh, Penarin's point of view. But there's also cases where he says, you know, I'd like a report on that. I'd like it on Thursday. Here's what it should contain. And that's more like a briefing with a back briefing coming back to him. Mm. We could go into that a lot, but uh, I just think um, Avery's kind of missed uh, some of the key uh, levers that you have besides just setting the values for the organization. Uh, so I, he, he may miss things, but I, I want to come back because I think there, I, I wouldn't want to miss this something essentially true about what he was saying. And I, and I think it's not something he comes out and says so much as he does it by contrast, which is a lot of people have the idea that as a executive or as a CEO, your job is going around sort of making decision, decision, decision. You know, you're the you know decision maker in chief uh, <laughs> or I am the decider. You know, that's kind of the, the um, stereotype that people might have in an, exec an executive. And then what um, is laid out here is something very different. I think it's that is that contrast 
is 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 probably mo- mostly what was the inspiration for the blog post. And I and I do think that there's something accurate to that. And I think in, you and I would agree on that. As, and, as and especially the um, the mischaracterization and misunderstanding. I remember I used to do a lot of work a long, long, long time ago in uh, uh, actually with police officers, and um, I had this view that was uh, kind of like what. Um, uh, Penarin assumes um, that they were kind of like the military in my stereotypical view, that there was somebody at the top who ultimately made all the decisions and all the police officers would say, okay, well, I got to check with my boss who has to check with his boss, who has to check with her boss. And then finally it got to the chief who would kind of make all the decisions. And if you, if you unwrap that, it doesn't make a lot of sense because police officers and people in the military have to make a lot of decisions on the ground without uh, the, the other folks around, they have to act quickly. That there's there's a stereotype of both types of organizations and of others as well. That somehow it all goes up the chain and ultimately say Steve Jobs or Michael Bloomberg or uh, somebody like that is is ultimately pulling all the strings and has all the control. And uh, the fun thing about Bungay, the guy who wrote Art of Action, is he's talking about the military and he talks about the Prussian military and how they operated in a very different way and that was much more successful. So uh, I think there's uh, an assumption about how uh, these organizations work that isn't correct, but there are elements that are correct about how uh, ineffective organizations work, that they they try to uh, uh, aspire to that way of working. And I think you've seen... Uh, we've both seen many cases where that doesn't work. Oh, absolutely, and I and I think it's because people take that stereotypical view and and they they act on it. They just they no one ever told them, you know. In growing up, they never said, "By the way, you know this picture you have of executives and bosses, that's not true." <laughs> so they they go into the workforce and they they have this view, and so I end up seeing this this um, problem where there's you sort of a, a mirror image. Uh, and it can actually can happen on either side, uh, where it, it could be sometimes the executive believes their job is to make the decision, and um, and because they have the power, they assume that I must have the information <laughs> to make it, and they and they just go around blithely making decisions, and people don't interrupt them. People who might think, well, that's a bad decision. I know something he doesn't, uh, or she doesn't. That they don't say anything, um, and and likewise, you can have places, and I've seen this as well where the staff pass along decisions that they actually have the information to make, but they don't pass along the information. <laughs> they say they, they, they pass the decision up the chain and assume, well, I know this and everyone must know it. And then the decision gets made. And meanwhile, the executive might be thinking, why am I making this decision? How come no one else makes decisions? And, uh, and they're both uncomfortable with it in, in these cases. And sometimes they're both comfortable. The staff is passing along, the exec makes a decision. It, they might be good decisions, they might be bad decisions, but everyone assumes that this is the natural order. Mm-hmm. And and it's the uh, dangerous kind of self sealing behavior that uh, to to trust your intuition. Well, I feel comfortable. I'm the executive. I'm supposed to be making the decision. I'm the subordinate. I'm supposed to be passing this to the executive, and therefore everything must be okay. And it's, it's like uh, the Titanic sailing blithely along toward the iceberg. Just kind of everything's okay until it isn't. <laughs> right. Now the thing is, I think behind this is that people make. Um, they, they kind of they kind of run into a problem, which is they're making a mistake around. Uh, I, I would say the decision rule uh, versus the conversation rule. Mm, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, so the decision rule is something that you can say. We have a group of us here, and we can say like 
how are we going to decide? And people have done studies of using different decision rules. You can do things like voting. Uh, you can have a single person in charge. Uh, you can say it's a consensus. We all need to come to, to an agreement. So you can have a decision rule. Um, and, and let's say you might have a decision rule that, yep, we're going to have the, an autocrat. And we're going to have one person who's um, going to have the binding decision over all of us. Mm -hmm. And then what's happening is people are are, are taking that forward and, and seeing the implication of this is going to be that, that we're going to assume that that person who has the, the decision rule is also the person who has all the information. Now, when you say it out loud... It, it it's it seems silly, uh, you know. You, there's there's a group of us. Why would we assume that 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 any one of us has all the information <laughs> to to make the decision? Uh, and in fact, when we ask people, and you've seen me do this now, I'll have a group of people, and I'll ask a random person, you know, if we had to make a decision as a group, what would you recommend? Yep, that's what we do in our trainings. So we we do a training called Mining for Conflict, for example, in which we ask exactly this question, and and people always give the same answer. Right. And you know what it never is? It never is. We should arbitrarily choose one person and they should decide because the assumption everyone makes is that, well, guess what? We, there's more, the, the, if we have multiple people here, we want to capture the value of that. We, we, there's a lot of discussion these days around diverse teams. Mm. And why is that? We, we believe and we, we espouse that diversity is a strength that the, the more people with different backgrounds and different ways of thinking, different information, that they will be, all be additive to the conversation. They'll bring in new information, new viewpoints, new ways. They'll generate new ideas. And that gives us more choices. So that's, that's the theory. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure everybody uh, subscribes to that theory, though, because I have examples, um, multiple ones. I have one in my mind of uh, startups that I've worked with in my practice where the CEO definitely doesn't have that view. The CEO has the kind of um, uh, I, I, I am all seeing, I am all knowing view. Uh, you were describing it to me earlier as like the, the lighthouse. So I'm going to focus on whatever I focus on when I focus on it everybody's going to pay attention to it and, and we're going to solve that problem because I'm able to solve all problems. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs are notorious for having this view, although I'm not sure they do. I don't know them. But uh, I had one where the, the CEO had this belief so strongly that um, he would stay up all night coming up with some new strategy. Unfortunately, it tended to be um, kind of once a week he had a new strategy and um, he would present this and get everyone aligned to it and, and working on it. And that could have worked if his strategy were well informed. But the problem is he was missing the information <laughs> and, and, and missing the belief. He, he did not subscribe to the belief that diversity was helpful. Um, it was pretty clear to me that, that he believed he had the answers and he just needed people to execute. Well, I, so I was describing what people's uh, espoused rules are. And I think I'm going to guess, and we, we don't know here, but even that executive, I think if you'd put him down in a group of people and said, we're going to make a decision, you know, how do you, how do we think we should make it? You know, uh, I don't think he would say, and we'll take this out of the context of his, uh, of uh, the startup where he was. Mm -hmm. And you're, yep. you're asking him generically, he probably has the same default assumption. The difference is mm, when you- I'm not when, sure. Well, I, I will have to run the experiment. We'd have sometime. to test it. Yep, indeed. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to make a claim here. <laughs> yeah. Based on what happens is this: the gap here between what people espouse as their theory and then what their theory and uses. And I'm pretty much going to quoting here from from a, a, a book, which by the way also mentions Andy Grove, which is the the book Organizational Traps uh, by Chris Argyris. And what he says is that uh, people will will um, when they get in a situation 
where there's the potential for a threat or embarrassment, then people's uh, the ways that they will actually behave will no longer match their espouse theory. Uh, and so I think if you have the position where someone comes in the role as the um, startup founder and they have bought into this idea that uh, the person who has the power to make the decision is the or is the right the right information or someone who's bought into the idea that you know I have I am the vision holder here I'm the only one who can choose the right thing to do that they uh, that they will in that context suddenly come up with a special rule or, or actually they probably won't articulate it but they will they will embody it that we're going to we're going to behave differently here we're going and, and the threat is the threat to their startup the threat to their vision and they're going to be the ones who are going to defend that threat uh, through unilateral action and and not being curious and uh, and just being the one who's is the decider Got it. Well, there's there's one example I, I wanted to share of a startup where I managed to help more with it. With that one, I wasn't as able to help as I as I would have liked. Um, but the uh, there was one example where the founder had a similar kind of view, but was more open to um, changes of process and behavior. And uh, there, what we were able to implement was a kind of a decision process. And we had a document that people beneath the the founder would. Um, develop. And um, that captured a lot of information. So we avoided this wrong behavior, this wrong assumption. We're passing up the decision, but we aren't passing the information. So there's a structured way to pass the information. And that led to much better uh, decision, con much better conversations. And then the decisions were still made. The decision rule was very clear. The founder will make these decisions, but um, there was a structure for it. So that was a way to, to operate with the um, uh, the, the decision rule that was in place, but to uh, make sure the information was passing in a more successful way. And I, and I think that's really key. And, and, and I've been able to have a similar sort of um, intervention at, at various organizations where I've done it by making exactly the separating the decision rule from the conversation rule. And I've, I've been able to say, you know, we, we, to make an explicit appeal, you know, yes, you are going to be the person making the decision. Um, wouldn't it be nice if you had all the information and it, there's even a, a variation of this, which I think can be very helpful to try to say, it, it, if you're the person who's in, in the, the position of making a decision, it can be very uh, tempting to, at the point that you feel comfortable to make the decision and say, right, let's stop, let's stop wasting time on this. Uh, instead, I found it to be a very interesting idea to say, someone else in this meeting has some vital information. They have it. They have an idea or an experience. And I've heard you describe this. You're pretending that, right? You don't know it. You're just yeah, you're, you're making the assumption in your head that this is true. Yeah, carry on. That's right. So let's 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 pretend that someone else in this meeting has some vital information, but I don't know who it is. I don't know who in the, the meeting has been given the secret information. Um, th they don't know that they have the secret information, and, and and we we don't know what it is. So the job of the meeting is to try to surface all the relevant information until so we, we can find, find that the secret one. That secret thing, yeah, we don't we don't know what it is, but it's going to be in here somewhere. Try to get someone today to to say today's secret word, but nobody knows what today's secret word is. It's kind of one of those that that would be a silly game to play, but this is one that actually has some some value. Yes, and it's, it's something that people understand. And, and and when I've explained it this way, especially in terms of say someone has, you know, if it, you can say, look, if we're going to have this meeting, if only one person had the important information and it wasn't the decider, would would we find it? Would we learn what it is? Would, would it inform our decision? And then um, let's let's make sure that we have a conversation in such a way 
that maximizes the chance of us finding out that information. Excellent. So if you want a practical uh, approach to finding those unknown unknowns, those things that you, that, that you don't know, then uh, Jeffrey's exercise could be very helpful. At the beginning of your next meeting, say, we're pretending somebody in this meeting has the vital information. And then at the end, say, would we have discovered it? Did we discover it? Because at some point, um, uh, I can certainly imagine somebody saying, aha, that was the vital information. We didn't know what it was, but you told us that uh, actually what we were planning was illegal. Excellent. <laughs> Glad to know. <laughs> let's, let's not go to prison. That's right. And I think for, for any executives listening here, uh, this is a, a chance for them to uh, look out for this trap on, on, uh, that we've been describing. On the one hand, they should be checking themselves that they're not um, making decisions that information. And they should also you know, understand that people might be passing along when they should be suspicious when people pass along to them decisions uh, uh, to make and, um, you know, to, to not assume that they're getting all the relevant information with it. They, they probably will need to go digging for it. Um, and, you know, even going so far as what we talked about, the, the class mining for conflict, it, it, that's going to be an idea that they're going to have to bring into it. Yeah. Um, the conflict is a great way to find that vital information that's missing. That's right. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, if listeners have enjoyed this or, or have a different view or read Andy Grove, Jeffrey, you have to read High Output Management. It's your assignment for next time. <laughs> okay. um, if you, if listeners have read it or, or, or are thinking of reading it and have comments or they've uh, commented on uh, Avery's uh, article, we'd sure be uh, glad to hear from you. Uh, we've heard from a couple in the past few weeks, which we really appreciate. That uh, You can do that at troubleshootingagile.com, where you'll find Twitter and email and other good things for getting in touch with us. If you'd uh, like to uh, hit that subscribe button for in whatever your app you have, we're here every Wednesday with lots more conversations. I know I want to come back to that uh, uh, briefing and BRAC briefing, because I think that's something really missing from uh, Penarin's article. So I, I'm, I'm keen to pick that one up sometime soon, Jeffrey. But if, if you're interested in hearing about any of those, um, do subscribe and uh, come back and hear us uh, every Wednesday. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl. Cool.